Well, thank you, Eric. So as, uh, as Eric said, I'm Sean Myatt. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Babel Street. I'm also one of the founders. Um, I am a graduate of Mississippi State University, so I'm from Amory originally. I uh, graduated in 2000 from Amory High School, and uh, I got my bachelor's in computer science in, uh, in around 2005, and then I finished my master's degree in computer science here at Mississippi State in 2011. So I'm going to uh, talk about my company today. Let me just get a stopwatch going so I don't go too long. There we go. All right, so does this, yeah, that works. So Jeffrey Chapman is the CEO. He's my business partner. And uh, I'm Sean Myatt. Currently, we have three offices. One's in Reston, Virginia, uh, where the headquarters is. Uh, we have our software development, basically our innovation centers here in Starkville, or out at the research park. And uh, we just recently opened a sales office in Sydney, Australia. So we're starting to head out internationally. Today we have 50 employees and our customers are located in eight countries. So I'm going to basically go through kind of my experience uh, as going through this whole endeavor of not having a business background and saying, all right, how did I get to where I am today? And one thing I will tell you is most everything I'm going to say is probably wrong, but it's also right, okay? In starting a business, there's no right or wrong way. Uh, there are ways that are better than others, but you know, you learn through people's experiences, and so that's basically what I'm here uh, to just talk about today. So Babel Street, what are we? We're an open source collection platform. We help uh, exploit open source intelligence from data that's freely available on the internet. So back in, uh, so November the, uh, November the 13th in Paris, uh, there's a terrorist attack. I think everybody's pretty familiar with uh, what transpired there. But our system, the day before, picked up the tweet that you see there in the middle. We identified uh, some Arabic language where uh, you can see the guy said, uh, soon in the center of Paris, God willing. Now, we didn't know what that meant. We just know that you know, people post these sorts of things all the time. But what gives it context is the fact that we took that guy and we built his social network around him. But as you're seeing there, we put that guy into our tool. We pulled his friends and followers, who he's talking to. Uh, the green nodes are the ones that he has a direct correlation relationship with. So he communicates with them a lot. So when we start looking at that, we say, all right, this guy is actually potentially affiliated with ISIS. So where do we go from there? So we pass this information along to the Bureau, and I'll talk more about it uh, in a little bit. Another thing uh, that we, uh, we help with a lot is police officer safety. So the Chicago field office utilizes our software for gangs. Um, gang activity online is, uh, well, they use it a lot, needless to say. But you can see uh, here it's uh, CPDK. So, um, uh, Chicago Police Department killers uh, with the, the police officer's forehead. 
So gangs routinely make threats through emojis and through uh, their own codes that traditional software may not necessarily pick up. And so again, when we identify these sorts of pieces of information, we build a social network around them, see who's, who's uh, connected to whom, and end up with uh, building the entire gang network as they are online. Some of you might recognize this. Um, this is when the shooting scare happened here at Mississippi State. So the immediate thing that everyone does is they immediately go to their phones, they start tweeting, they start sending out pictures of Instagram, they send up videos of YouTube. Our software picks up that stuff almost immediately and this provides situational, uh, real-time situational intelligence to law enforcement and other personnel who may not necessarily have a view as to what's going on behind the scenes. Now, where, so where do we, so where do we fit in all this thing? So if you go Google social media monitoring, you're going to see that there are about 250 companies worldwide that do this sort of thing. Um, we try to not position ourselves as just social media because we actually connect to about 30 different sources online. Uh, some are on the deep and dark web. Um, but we don't, uh, we're not just social media. The other thing is, is you have foreign language. So take, take for instance the MSU incident, all right? There were people all over the world talking about that. News organizations, you can see that we did a quick, you know, just from this date range, we removed English from the chart, but you have French, Italian, Spanish, Dutch, Norwegian. You have other languages, people in other languages talking about these things that go on. So we said, okay, how do we, how do we tap into that? All right, you've got, you've got folks like ISIS, you've got all of these terrorist organizations, you've got gangs, you've got all these people using vernacular and language that isn't just standard to English. Your, your standard natural language processing uh, engine isn't going to pick up or know how to interpret it. So how can we solve that problem? And so that's what we set out to do. So what we came up with is the concept of cross-lingual searching. So effectively is what you have here on the left is a list of keywords in English. And what we do is we monitor social media channels for any mentions of those keywords in any language. So to give you an idea of what that looks like, uh, you can see here we've highlighted the terms as we found them in native language. Um, so, you know, potassium nitrate, ammonium nitrate. Uh, you can even see we found the chemical compound there. So, um, we did this by crowdsourcing the internet and building an ontology of entities linked across languages. So, I know how one thing is represented in other languages. So, take for example the keyword Obama. In our system, if you type in Obama, you're actually going to be looking at about 2,000 different representations across 180 languages. And so what that does is that now takes someone like me who can barely speak English um, and I can now exploit data in any language and get information out of it. So this is our bread and butter. This is what differentiates us from, uh, from the rest of those companies out there. So now that I've given you kind of an overview, let's, let's kind of back up and talk about how we got here. So the original idea was we needed to generate real-time actionable intelligence by persistently monitoring and analyzing multilingual data found in the open internet, deep web, and third-party vendors. 
So when you're starting a company, you have to identify what what it is you're trying to solve. If you're going to make something new or you're going to uh, create some, some app to do something, whatever it is, you have to identify what the problem is you're trying to solve. And when you're going to pitch investors, if you don't have a short phrase that you can drop and give them, you need to rethink it. For example, people used to ask me all the time, Sean, what do you do? What do you guys do? And it would take me 10 minutes to explain it. And by that 10 minutes, they're just like, um, I, don't, I don't know what you just said. You just said a whole bunch of stuff. So you have to come up with a concise statement that basically says, all right, this is what we're trying to solve, and this is how we do it. All right? We collect data based off user-driven requirements, and we deliver precise search results, multi-point analysis, and alerts across hundreds of languages all on one console. So now that you know that, if we go back here, that's what this does. User sets up, I care about these keywords. We go collect it for them, and we deliver the alerts to them in any language. So, um, so who are our customers? Who do we target? Uh, our customers are basically federal government law enforcement. Uh, we are branching out into the uh, professional sports arena. We have the Carolina Panthers uh, as customers. We have Baylor Bears. Uh, we have Department of Health and Human Services. They use our software to monitor uh, global pandemic tensions um, all across the world. And uh, we have various law enforcement agencies that use the software today. Uh, one would be the Mississippi Fusion Center. Pearl, uh, they're actually a customer of ours, as well as several other federal agencies that I can't really go into too many details about. But uh, we do have some strategic partnerships. Uh, SAP is an investor in the company. Uh, IBM is a partner. Jeff and myself are actually former IBMers. Uh, we left IBM to uh, start Babel Street. So once we got Babel Street funded, uh, we left that job. And then McKinsey and Adobe are, are very good partners of ours as well. So let's talk about how I got to where I am now. Basically, in 2009, Jeff and I, uh, Jeff sat down and he said, okay, I've got this idea. <clears throat> and we have all this information on the internet that, uh, that, uh, that people freely put out there. All right, it's freely available. Uh, if, you, if you look at Jeff's background, so by way of Jeff's background, he actually worked for the Treasury Department and his job was monitoring fraud for Al-Qaeda, so watching Al-Qaeda's money movements. All right. In that position, he had every possible tool at his hands to do whatever it is he wanted to do. The one thing he could not do was, first of all, monitor open source data, things that are freely available on the internet. The government hadn't caught on to it at that point. And two, he could not exploit stuff in other languages because they, only, they had to have a linguist to go out analyze all these Twitter feeds and all these things and tell them which items were relevant. So we said, okay, um, surely, surely we can solve this problem. Like, so he's being an entrepreneur himself. He called me up. He says, Sean, I've got an idea. What do you think? I was like, well, let's put together some prototypes and let's see, let's see what happens, what we can come up with. Well, in 2009, Twitter was just getting started. Facebook was gaining, gaining, uh, gaining ground. And as far as the federal government and law enforcement goes, they thought this whole thing was a fad. They're like, nobody's using Twitter. This thing's going to go away in a couple of years. What the heck can you do in 144 characters anyway? 
Well, fast forward to today, I think we're all quite aware of what ISIS and other folks are able to do with social media, um, seeing as they run very, uh, very elaborate campaigns. But back then, we, we, had, uh, we were trying to educate all these folks that, hey, you should care about this. Uh, this data is freely available. Look, I'm showing you that you just did a drone strike here, and they're telling you people that died. They're talking about it online, and these guys survived. Well, no, we, then they'll just say, no, we can't look at that. It's, 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 it's unclassified. We, you know, we don't care. It's not relevant. And we said, okay, uh, government's not ready for this sort of thing yet. So what can we do? Well, I go look at uh, reviews online before I go make a big purchase, right? I'm going to go to Amazon. I'm buying a, uh, a surround sound system or TV or something. I'm going to go look at what people say about it. And that was pretty common back then. So we built out a sentiment, cap sentiment analysis capability that looked at attitude, emotion, intent, positive, negative, neutral, all that kind of stuff. And we started aggregating these comments for people and because uh, we had to make some money, right? And so we started generating these reports and we would send them off. We had Coca-Cola, Beautyrest, BMW. We had a few, um, a few customers at that, at that time. But the problem was, um, once we did the report for them once, they're like, well, why would I buy this every month? Uh, our, our, um, our brand does not change that much from month to month in terms of how people perceive us online. So why do I care? Well, um, I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and by this time, it was around 2011. So we're like, well, maybe we should try and start getting back into the government space. Because this whole time, this whole two years, Jeff has been out uh, talking to you know all of his contacts within the in, within the various agencies and pushing the little nuggets of information that we're finding online. And so we finally got somebody in 2012 to buy into the idea. Like, hey, you know, you guys have something here. This is this is actually good. And so we got our first investment in 2012. Um, with that, I hired. We hired three people, and uh, off we went. So it took roughly a year uh, to get a product ready to go to market. So in 2013, we actually went to market with our product. And uh, at that time, we had five people. Today, we have 50. So you can see that it took a lot of work along the way, but we eventually got there. Uh, to give you an idea of how we started out, our company was actually called Agincourt Solutions in the beginning. Um, if you go Google, Court and Jeff Chapman, you'll see that uh, we actually did a report after the Benghazi attacks happened. That, uh, social media analysis of that whole thing because the State Department said that it was uh, what, innocent, innocence of Muslims. That video was uh, what started the riot. And we looked at all the social media and said, no, there's absolutely no way that that's possible. Um, so you'll see that, uh, that there's a Fox News article, and it's been shared multiple times and rehashed several times along that way. But what we came out of the whole sentiment analysis part was is we had two things. We had an entity analysis engine and a conceptual search so we could type in terms of language, and I could go find it in other languages. Similarly, I could take an article, uh, let's say a news article, put it into the system and say, go find me articles that are like this one. So not necessarily articles that contain the same keywords, because remember, we're looking across language. But I can find, I could take an English article that's about 
the 2000, you know, let's say Donald Trump for the election, and I could go find other articles in Chinese that are about those similar topics. So we had those, um, but what we didn't have was the data that was available. All right, so I'll, I'll get into that more, but if there's any one thing that I'll say that you need to learn, and, and I know this is cliche, but don't let great be the enemy of good, or don't let perfect be the enemy of good, this is what our user interface started out as. Okay, it was just an idea. We threw it out there. We have these three little things that you can do. You know, what do you think? This is what the interface looks like today. Today we hook into 30 different social media platforms. We do heat maps. Uh, everything's fully automated. It's fully redundant. Uh, we actually have a team of designers now that you know make sure the app looks and runs like it's supposed to. Uh, but don't let perfect be the enemy of good. That user interface got us money to get the company going. All right. And one thing that I'll say about this is we actually. Had, so I said Jeff and I started the company, but there was actually five of us in the beginning. And what happened was so many of the other guys wanted so hard to over-engineer the solution. They didn't want to move fast enough. They wanted to over-engineer it. They were too slow. And it's like, look, I need something that I can show now. Like Jeff's going next week to this guy. We've got to be able to show this. We're, we're pitching investors. We're trying to get money so we can take this thing forward. And they were slow. And eventually, they were like, look, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's too hard. It's too fast. Uh, they let perfect be the enemy of good. So uh, we got funding. and. Um, then I would say, all right, so in the startup phase of your company, here, here, here are my observations. You got to have the right story, and you got to have the right people to get the investment, all right? The technology that you have is not the most important thing, okay? Um, now, what do I mean by that? We have the right story, okay? Uh, monitoring open source media, social media for terrorism, helping stop terrorist attacks, helping eliminate social networks online. All right. Jeff was the storyteller of that whole thing. He came from that background and he could speak the lingo all day long. He was he had the story and he was the right person to be telling that story. Now on the other side of things you gotta have the technical person to be able to work with him and actually build these things. So right story, right people for me that equaled our investment. Now, let me give you an example of uh, where this didn't work. Okay. Several years ago, I judged an app competition. And the guy, the guys, like I'm going to sell it to bands, rock bands that play on stage, that do big shows. Uh, and it is the, uh, the fans can download the app and vote on the songs that they want the band to play. And then while the band's playing their show, they can see what the fans are voting for. And uh, they can uh, they can their show. Oh, they want us to play this song next. We should play that song. All right. Fantastic presentation. Actually a pretty good idea. When he gets up there and he, he presents, I ask him one question. I said, have you ever played in a band? It's like, no. Do you work with somebody that's played in a band? Well, no, I'm, I'm just a fan. I, I, I want to, that's something that I want to do as a fan. I was like, well, you're not selling it to fans. You're selling it to the band. And me, I'm a drummer. I'm piano. 
playing bands, and I can tell you that there are so for large large groups that are out playing. So he was he was throwing around Dave Matthews Band, Rihanna, all these big names. It's like they have a team of a hundred people working lights, sound, pyrotechnics, tuning, all kinds of things behind the scenes. They can't change their set list. <laughs> Once their set list is set for the night, they are going. Now maybe when they get to the end and they do an encore, sure, but. That's where he lost. He got second place in the competition because he didn't have he wasn't the right person for, it and he couldn't respond to that. It completely threw him off. He's like, uh, uh, so, so um, you know, it's like, so how are you going to sell it to a band that has to, that they can't change their set list? Why would we buy this? So you got to have the right story. You got to have the right people. And look, the whole time that you're going through this, you have to listen to your customers or potential customers. At a startup, you, you won't even have customers, probably. However, uh, you know what Jeff did, the entire time we were trying to build and get a concept of our product out, he was continually pitching his friends. He was going around. He was still having meetings. He was talking about the ideas of the company. Here's what we're thinking about putting in. What do you guys think about this? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. You should do this, this, this. Over the, from 2009 to 2012, I had a list of almost 500 things that people wanted the software to do. All right, if we're going to build an open source data collection platform, here are the things we need it to do. To this day, we're still chopping away at that list. Um, because what we found is your customers, or at least the ones that we worked with, they absolutely love being a part of something that grows. If they can see that they have a direct impact on how a company innovates and moves their product to the next level, they absolutely love it. They're like, oh yeah, I remember back when Babel Street, you know, just had these little three buttons and it crashed all the time. You didn't ever know if it was going to work, but look at them now. You know, I, I helped them do that. And you would be surprised at how many customers will get on board with that and they will tell you exactly what you need to do and what you need to build. You just have to listen to them. The other thing that I would say is you have to stay focused. A lot of people make this mistake where uh, they have the customers telling them the list of 500 things that they should do. But I have to say, no. Okay. Uh, Sean, can you make the software Arabic? Sean, can you make it do this? Sean, can you do predictive analytics? Can we make it? The answer is yes to all of that stuff. We sure can. The problem is time and money. When do you want it? How long are you willing to wait for it? Because we have to stay focused on our core, comp core competency, get the UI in a place where, uh, you know, where it functions and we can actually sell it. If you get distracted, keep getting, you know, sidetracked and you don't stay focused, you're not, gonna, you're not going to succeed. So be sure you stay focused on what you're good at. Innovate quickly. Look, you saw the UI that I showed you before, all right? Nobody in the world would pay money for that. All right. We got it out. We got we we got an investment. So you have to innovate quickly. All right. Everyone says slow and steady wins the race, right? The turtle beats the hare. No, that's not how it really works. Okay. The rabbit always wins. Uh, and you know what? Most of the time, the companies win aren't always the best. All right. They're the folks that got out in the market and got market adoption first. Okay. So innovate quickly and listen to your customers. You just have to. Keep your head down and move. Now, this, this next point is probably the most important part that I'll talk about, and it's about building your team. 
So once we got our investment, uh, I needed to go out and hire folks to help. When you're in your infancy, I, you, you, as far as a software development company goes, because that's the perspective I'm talking from, you have to hire problem solvers. Okay? Uh, we are a .NET shop. We use C Sharp, ASP.NET, all those Microsoft technologies. But I hired people that were experienced Java developers who maybe had never touched any of these technologies before. I knew, based off of their resume and the things that they've done, and the network of people, because as the second point says, hire from your network, hire from the people that you know and trust. I knew that they could solve problems. I can teach anybody how to do a programming language, or you can go learn it. There's all kinds of tutorials online. But I can't teach people how to solve problems. If I have to hold your hand every step of the way and say, well, did you try this? Well, what about this? Well, did you try this? Uh, you're not going to succeed. You have to hire problem solvers and let them go figure out the problems and how to solve them. So again, so hire from your network. Um, today, at Battle Street, every single software developer, with the exception of two that I hired last month, are one, MSU grads, uh, and two, I have worked with them in some capacity pre previously starting the company. So building your network is very important. Go to meetings, go to join clubs, Go, you know, doing the entrepreneurship thing that you guys are doing here now is great. Get to know the people sitting in the room because you never know when you may have a need for a, somebody that might have a particular skill set and you tap into your network. Now, we've grown to a point now where we actually have to go outside of our own network. And last month, we hired two people that applied off of the job posting we put on Monster and LinkedIn. Uh, and so that's good for us, and we're moving, you know, we're growing. But to the same point, you hire the people that you know because they understand what they're getting into. Folks, when you're starting a business, there's no such thing as a 40-hour work week. Now, I realize that, um, you know, your wife, your fiance, your girlfriend, uh, they may not understand that because they may have a job where they just go 8 to 5 every day and they come home. When you're starting a company, it doesn't work that way. There's no such thing. And so the people that you hire have to understand what they're getting into, that if the company fails, it's their fault too. It's everyone's fault. Okay? And uh, we've, had, you know, we've had people drop off along the way that just couldn't, they, they couldn't handle it. So what I would say is if you're, if you're young, if you don't have a mortgage yet, if you don't have car payments, you don't have all these things, now's the time to try and start a business. Because the only big loss to you is time. Okay, It's not really necessarily going to be money unless you're having to invest money. But most people, when you're first starting out, you actually don't have money to invest. The only thing you have is know-how and time. Invest the time. Because so you'll at the, you know, maybe, maybe the company fails in six months. Because that's what I would tell everybody when I would hire someone new. It's like, look, we may not have a job in six months. But I can tell you, the whole time, what we're going to try and do is innovate and make sure that you learn technologies and learn things that will take you to the next step. So that if we do have to, if the company were to fold today, everyone on my team, I am confident, could have a job by, by the end of next week. It would not be a problem. So be sure the folks you hire understand what they're getting into. Because 
it, it's not easy. I can tell you for the better part of three years, I worked well over 100 hours a week, all right? And as did most of the folks, we would, we would, uh, we would work two all-nighters every week to try and get things out where they are. So just know what you're getting into. And if you fail, it's everyone's fault. Now, the last point is, will be up for debate. Don't go to market too early. Depends on what you're, what you're trying to do. If you have a mobile app, uh, you know, it, it's different for, uh, for everything that you're trying to accomplish. But for us, with the software solution that we built that we're trying to sell to law enforcement and federal agencies and, you know, sports teams, uh, if we went to market too early, a lot of these customers only get one bite at the apple. You only get one shot. And if you get in front of them and you screw it up, well, you're stuck. Now, uh, you may have been depending on that revenue, uh, but now you're going to have to go find it somewhere else. So you have to be very careful about when you go to market. Because the other thing is, you have competition out there that's going to be like, hey, uh, I saw Babel Street do this uh, thing. Now, their system crashes all the time. It's not good. but we can do the one thing that they've got. So let's see if we can implement it, steal their idea, implement it, you know, put it in some sort of big competitor system, and then we're no longer relevant. So be very careful about when you go to market. Fly under the radar. We've been doing that for a really long time, and we are, we've been fortunate enough that we actually don't have to do advertising. We don't advertise at all. Um, I get anywhere from five to 10 unsolicited emails or messages through our website every week for people hearing word of mouth. They're like, hey, I saw you at this conference, or so-and-so told you about, told us about this. Would you, uh, would like a quote, would like a demo. And so, so now we are transitioning out of the startup phase, and this is my favorite quote. I don't always test my code, but when I do, I do it in production. All right, so for those that aren't aware of what a production environment is, that's the environment that your customers are hitting every day. All right, so in, in software development, we go from you know, dev to QA, release candidate, and then uh, we actually moved to production. When you're a startup, we do this all the time. Like, oh, customer's got an issue with something, let me log right into the database, change the thing, do the data, boom, all right, try it now. Yep, works good, on to the next thing, all right. In the early phases, you can kind of get away with that because you're just trying to innovate, get things out the door, keep the customer happy. But once you transition out of that startup phase to where you actually have customers, you can't do that anymore. And uh, that's been, that's been a, a learning experience for some of our guys now. You don't test your code in production anymore. You test it in the QA and, and release candidate environment before it goes. And so that's... Uh, that leads to the next points of, okay, what happens now that we're kind of starting to grow up? Well, it's time to scale. So, you know, initially our stuff would crash all the time. It was just one server, one database. There was no redundancy. If, you know, go down, Twitter stopped sending us data. There's all kinds of issues. What I will say is typically the code that you write in your startup phase isn't going to scale. You're more, like, more than likely going to go have to go back retool, use some different technologies, because you're trying to innovate and just get something out the door to get customer adoption. Once you start getting customer adoption, then you can say, okay, now we're going to scale it out. So today, our entire system is redundant, you know, across multiple availability zones. So if internet in uh, Virginia goes out, 
the system fails over to our backup on AWS out on the West Coast. You know, more expensive, and that's and that's the big part about transitioning out of startup that even even the business side of my company had trouble adjusting to was, um, well, what do, what do you mean we got to triple our cost? Well, you want copies of the system running so we can reboot this one and update it without it affecting customers. And that costs more money. It's more hardware, more time, and you've got to have more people to maintain it. The other thing I would say is you properly secure your software. This is so important. Um, I just spent roughly $100,000 on a device, uh, several software devices to put in front of our, our, our firewalls uh, to protect us from um, all kinds of attacks, uh, DDoS attacks and things like that. So you have to properly secure your software. No matter what you do, you're not going to do a good enough job at it because some employee is going to be on the VPN, they're going to go to some site that downloads malware and propagates through your VPN across your network and uh-oh, then you're screwed. Um, so properly secure your software, your computers, everything. Lock it down as much as you can because the potential for failure at this stage of the game, we can't go down. We cannot have downtime because we have 2,000 plus people looking at our software every day using it for a lot of different law enforcement and national security uh, things. How do you know when you're not a startup anymore? So I've been asked that several times, and the best answer that I could come up with, I think I read at Forbes probably, is you're not a startup when you have to imp implement bureaucracy in your day-to-day -day, uh, day -day operations. So if you hire a director of operations, if you start implementing policies, you have leave policies, you have uh, no longer testing your code in production, you have development operation policies that say it has to go this route. Um, you do code reviews, you do all these things. Once you start implementing corporate policies, that's really when you're not a startup anymore. But you have to do it um, because everyone in the company, as you grow, your goals are going to change. You know, two years ago, I primarily showed up to work every day and I did nothing but write code. Um, today, that is not the case. I probably spend 20% of my time writing code uh, and 80% of everything else, going to meetings, uh, managing, you know, basically doing management type functions. And what, what's important to note about this is a lot of, your, a lot of the team that, uh, again, going back to the hiring the right people, um, if you hire the right people, aren't going to handle these role changes very well. All right. Some people just aren't meant to be a manager. All right. They are your rock star algorithms developer that can just do all these amazing things, but they don't know how to manage people, and that's not what you should do with them. So we make sure that we still continue to pay them accordingly. In most companies, managers make, you know, what, 50% more than the average of employees below them. That's not the case with us. I take the IBM approach because I worked at IBM. Uh, they would probably not appreciate me saying this, but I would say that about 80% of the people that work at IBM, I would say, are about a B or C. If I were to group them, they're about B or C folks. All right, but those folks are absolute experts at the one thing they know how to do, and they get in that job and they stay in that job for 30 years. And IBM recognizes that, hey, that's good, fine. You, you're not, you're not, you're not going to rocket up the, the corporate ladder. Uh, people that 
or your A, A, A get, get a grade of A, they rocket up the corporate ladder. They're almost your entrepreneur type people within IBM that end up being the managers. But they recognize that it is important to have those people that love what they do, they're good at what they do, and they're compensated accordingly, just like the managers above them are. So keep that in mind because you'll eventually get to the point where you might you will end up alienating your employees and then we're like, well, I don't understand why Sean makes uh, three times what I do when I sit here and I, write, I make the thing work every day, all right? Roles are gonna change and not everybody needs to change roles. Um, so just keep that in mind. And look, as you grow, you gotta make it shiny. You saw the UI we started with, the UI we've got now is much better, but our competition, your competition is going to innovate how it looks, and I know graphic designers hate that term, uh, make it shiny, but you know it has to look good. It has to be streamlined. Uh, be sure that you know that's what you have to do. So, um, listen to your employees. I like what Steve Jobs said: you don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. You hire smart people and they tell you what you should do. Uh, if you cannot do that with the folks that you hire, then you didn't hire the right people. All right. Again, it goes back to getting the right team because you have to be able to trust and work with them and listen to what they say because they they probably know. You can't be an expert at everything. All right. You just can't and nobody is. So, listen to your employees. Again, keep listening to your customers. Your customers even at this stage of the game, they're telling us even more that we want to go. Our list of our list of things that people want added just grows and grows and grows every day and we do our best to knock it down, and they see that we're innovating. Um, but as you grow, um, the innovation cycle, so the release times slow down because your risk is much higher than the reward as opposed to deploying something out that might be buggy. Uh, so our customers, you know, we've gone to, used to, we would do releases every single week. We would do a, a full release every week. Now we do a release every three weeks. And I would say probably within the next couple of months, we'll probably be down to one release a month. Just because there are so many things, automated unit testing, all that stuff that has to happen uh, before we, yeah, before you release something to your customers. The final thing that I think is the hardest, one of the hardest things to do when a company starts to grow is to maintain the culture. So, you know, for the longest time, we, we say, all right, Vacation. What about vacation? Like, how many vacation days do you get? Well, we actually don't give students vacation. Uh, students. We we don't give employees uh, actual vacation time. We let them take as much time as they want. All right. Netflix does this. I think there are a few other companies that kind of take this approach. But we want to maintain a culture that says, look, you're getting stuff done, right? You need a week off. Go take a week off. It's fine. We've built redundancy into the team now where people can start to do that. I don't work 100 hours a week anymore. Nobody on the team does because we've grown and we're not a startup anymore. So um, I'm about the 40 minute mark. There's a lot of things I could just keep talking about, but I'm actually going to stop there. Um, that is my email address up there. It's my name. Look, if you have any questions or anything that you would like more information about, uh, we do internships. We hire part-time students. Uh, if you're graduating soon, you know, we obviously hire graduates. So reach out to me. Happy to talk to you. Uh, I guess with that, I'll take questions.
Did I glitch and forget to post this? I can't remember. Yeah, all right. So we're going to do a Q&A old-fashioned style, but uh, if we don't have enough participation, I'm not going to uh, award full credit for that. So let's ask some questions of, uh, of Sean. And, uh, Most surprising customer. You know, um, I have to say, I think the most surprising customer we got was uh, oh, who was it? It was a company that took us to the Super Bowl. Actually, our first time we got to go to the Super Bowl, it was like, well, uh, you actually want to put our software in the security booth and have it looked at it. I can't remember uh, which agency it was, but it was our first trip to the Super Bowl. I was like, yeah, this, this is cool. We do not. Um, so we have we actually have four students that work with us right now. Um, I'm happy to go through the co-op program. You know, we just haven't engaged that far. Uh, thus far, folks have just like, hey, uh, through word of mouth, we'll hire you, work 20 hours a week or whatever. But uh, if that's something that you're interested in, yeah, we could we could definitely explore that. Yeah, so, uh, so we group, we connect to 30, 30 different uh, social media platforms today. Uh, we do have the Twitter Firehose, which requires us to pay Twitter an enormous amount of money uh, to access. Uh, their Twitter API is freely available. They don't charge people for that. Uh, and most social media companies actually don't care if you use their API um, for free, kind of like what we're doing. Uh, but we do. Uh, we do have a team of lawyers that review the terms of use of every single uh, engagement that we do to make sure that we are on the side of legal. Uh, and where, where it is uh, necessary, we do pay them for access to, to the APIs. You got a question? So, uh, so I knew Jeff from a previous company. He had started a company before uh, and that I actually worked for right out of school and he sold it a couple of times. And it was a number of years before uh, he wanted to start Babel Street up. Now, I would say the main motivation was getting to own your own company. Like, how, how, how cool is that? Working for yourself, waking up every day, knowing that the success of the business lives and dies by how good of a job you do. I'm not working for anybody else. I'm not, you know, uh, if I if we push another, you know, some some more dollars through the system this quarter, who gets that money? All right. Well, my company gets the money, and so it, you know, I trusted Jeff. Jeff trusted me. That's one of the things that you'll learn is uh, Jeff doesn't have a technical background. I, I'm the technical guy. He's the business guy, and you really have to kind of have I think both. Uh, you have to have that mix of people and you have to have that trust between the two to really be successful and uh, yeah main motivation was just who, who doesn't want to own their own company I mean that opportunity basically just fell into my lap and I'm like yep I will do whatever it takes to be a part of this and make it successful 
so Babel Street, uh, you know, the whole cross-lingual thing, multilingual searching, different languages, that kind of thing. We have two ways that, that we can spin it, depending upon who we're talking to. So Babel Street, Babel being the Tower of Babel in the Bible. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know, God made all the people start speaking different languages so they couldn't work together anymore. So we kind of solved that problem. The other, the other side of the coin is, I think it's in Cairo. Uh, Babel Street is actually where is Embassy Row, where all the embassies of the world are. Um, so there, there's a couple of plays on the name there. Uh, it was very hard to pick a name for the company. We went through a lot of variations on it. Questions? Uh, I learned them as I went. So I was very lucky in my in my career. If you look at my resume and you go look at my LinkedIn profile, you're gonna be like, gosh, Sean changed jobs every like every two years almost. And for a a developer, a computer scientist starting out, you will find that if somebody you you outgrow your worth almost every two years, so the company can't pay you what you're actually worth because you've gained so much knowledge that you could just change jobs and get a $20,000 raise. All right, that's basically the path that I took. And as I did that every time, I had very good people, like very good bosses that I would watch, I would pay attention to, I would try and learn how they do things. And a couple of them along the way, I learned how not, what you should not do, um, which is just, just important. So to answer the question, I really learned it over the course of my career. And then once we, you know, once Jeff started taking me to these higher up meetings of, with all these people that little old me from Mississippi has no business being in the room with, um, you, you learn a lot. So I, I basically learned, learned on the job. Um, the other thing I would say is listen to your employees, all right? More often than not, your employees are gonna tell you like, hey, why don't, you know, I think we really need to have this uh, automated build server thing, right? Granted, I knew that going into it, but they, they, your employees kind of give you direction as to where you should go um, in terms of management. And read books. Read, read, read. I've, I watch TED Talks. TED Talks and read books. There's a good TED Talk about super chickens. I recommend you, uh, I, re I recommend you check that one out. All right, Cor corporate culture. Uh, it's the super, super chickens. Check that one out. There was somebody, yeah. Uh, do we hold back information from? So, so here's what I'll tell you. Everything that we collect off the internet is freely available. All right, we're not hacking. We're not doing anything illegal. It's all compliant. So. If I had everyone's Twitter handle in the room, I could go load it in our platform. I, you know, I could build a social network analysis of every single one of you and see who your friends and followers are. There's a lot of scary things that we could do with it. Um, but it's freely available information that people put out there. So, you know, everything that I, you know, obviously I didn't give you a demo of the platform because I don't have enough time to do that. Uh, but no, we really, we really don't hold anything back. We, we give the whole capability to any of our customers that buy it, and we actually give them a three-day training course on how to use it. But you'll find that the biggest challenge we have is training people how to think about exploiting open source data. Most people don't, 
you have the you know folks been working in the government for 20 years, they don't they don't know what Reddit is. They've never heard of 4chan, uh, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's a very big educational process to teach them how to do this. And to, no, we we don't. We give away a lot of information for free actually uh, to law enforcement agencies and customers and anybody. If we were to see a threat pop up towards uh, you know, the Atlanta Braves baseball stadium or something like that, we would immediately push that out. Uh, early on in the company, we had to give away a lot of free things like that. Like, hey, because we have a team of analysts right now that social engineer their way into closed networks, you know, hidden groups uh, to try and collect that data and, and whatnot. So Jeff and myself worked full-time job elsewhere. So uh, we had no money. It was straight up sweat equity. Uh, the software, when we got, <laughs> when we pitched it to investors, uh, the final investor that actually invested, it was running on my desktop at my house. All right, and uh, so that, that's basically how we did it. We, yeah, we just worked full-time jobs. Once we got the investment. Then it was like, all right, now I can quit this job and go work this job 100 hours a week now instead of two jobs together. There's a question up there. Um, so uh, public, yes. Uh, the private, uh, not, not really. Uh, it depends. So one of the capabilities that the software has is, uh, let's say, Let's say you and you are friends on Twitter. Or you only allow people to uh, follow you that you've confirmed. So the only people that can see tweets are confirmed followers. Now, if I follow you and you say, oh, yeah, I trust Sean. I'll let him into my network and we can see your tweets. I can actually take my account, link it into Babel Street, and Babel Street can go collect data. So that's about the only way you really get access to private data is if some other person, social engineers their way in or something like that, gets access to it. But otherwise, no, there's no way for us to just call up Twitter and be like, hey, you know, this person, they got their account locked down. Can we get the tweets, please? No. The FBI can do that, but they have to get a court order to do it. Yes. So the main driver and cost of our uh, software is the data. Uh, some data sources are more expensive than others, and some customers will use certain types of data more. Some customers only care about Twitter. It's the most expensive data source we have. Other customers may only care about Instagram. That's not that expensive. So it is a base subscription model. And uh, so I'm not going to release, I can't release the pricing. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, so it's a subscription model, and it varies from customer to customer. We give them kind of like you would a cell phone plan. Uh, so you get data packages, like, all right, I get this many millions of documents a month or a year. Or, or if you need more, we up you to the next package. And, and that's how we sell it. We also have a services side, side of the house where um, maybe you don't have the analyst to go in and manipulate and set up all the stuff. We have a team that will do that for you and give you an account 
that you can just log in and consume the data every day. So maybe, um, you know, like the, maybe you've got like 20, 20, uh, 20 accounts on Twitter that you manage, and then you would just log in and see all the analytics related to those 20 accounts. You don't need to know how to set it up or manipulate it or anything, but we set it up and it's just doing its thing for you. It's actually about half and half right now. Um, I would probably have to say there are more people in the Reston office um, just because we're hiring a bunch of sales trainers and support staff and stuff. So their, their office is outpacing ours. Um, the, more, the more recent people that I hired, they actually work remotely because um, they've got 10 plus years experience. I trust the fact that they know how to work remotely. And that, that's a very common thing to do in the tech industry now. Yep. Yep, so uh, the fire hose, it will be in our system within one, one to two minutes. Uh, right now, the system processes for all of our customers around 1,000 documents a second. So everything's a document, uh, a tweet, a Facebook post, Instagram post, whatever, we web page, we call it a document. We do 1,000 a second, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, just like that. And um, our system will scale with hardware. So the whole part that I mentioned before is when you originally write your code, it's not going to scale once you actually have to. You have to do some retooling, split parts out, use some different technologies, uh, just like we use solar now for our search engine because it, it scales linearly instead of vertically. I will scale vertically too, but it scales linearly very well. And so, uh, yeah, so we've seen spikes at the current configuration at about 5,000 documents a second during like uh, debates and Super Bowl and stuff like that. Yeah, so currently today we're on a three-week build, uh, a three-week release cycle. Uh, six months ago we would release new stuff every week. Um, now that things are growing and we're getting more process oriented where we have team foundation server every time somebody commits code it does a full build it runs unit tests uh, we get alerted if you know somebody breaks the build all that kind of stuff so uh, today it's every three weeks and i think over the course of the next few months we'll probably go to a once a month release just because the amount of testing that has to occur uh, increases with the more uh, the, the more we grow, and you just you can't release bugs into production at this point. The risk is too too great. Give us an example to also uh, follow up question. How does your quote up there finish your business? Sure. Uh, so let's see, it's a manager question. Um, at the end of the day, I would say, don't be an asshole, okay? That's the easiest way to put it. Look, you never know, you never know where you're gonna be in five years, all right? And I've had managers that uh, were yes men who didn't have any idea of what was going on in the business. All they knew is their boss came down and said, hey, can you do this? And you're like, yep. Can you do this? Yep. Like, yeah, we can do it in six months. 
when did you promise it to him? Well, I just said, yeah, Sean, I'm do it. Um, and, and meanwhile, manager goes and plays video games on his computer all day. All right? That same guy, fast forward five, five, yeah, about five, six years, is now looking for a job. Guess who has a company? And guess who isn't going to hire him? All right? And that, I've seen that twice. I've had that happen twice. Now, along the other lines, um, yeah, just don't, just don't be an asshole. Treat, treat people, treat people nice and well. And don't play video games at work while you're slaving away. I mean, you're making all your other slave away to, to deadlines. Uh, the other question, so effectively, so Jeff likes this quote. Uh, you have so many um, people had this idea of, okay, I want the data to say this. I think that, uh, oh, what's a good example? I think that, you know, uh, they're, the Syrian refugees coming to the United States, like 90% of them are terrorists. I think that. Go find me data to prove that. That's not the way it works, okay? You have the question, we'll go find the data and tell you what the facts are. You don't change the data to suit the facts. So that, that's effectively it. And we have so many folks, like, like the older guys in the government, who are like, oh, what's this social media thing? They were setting their ways. Like, well, my report over here says that it's this, so that's obviously right. It's like, that's, they, you, that's what you wanted them to say. You told them that. They, they made it because that's what you wanted it to say, not what the data actually says. And so that's, uh, that's where the quote comes from. There was somebody had a question. So I'll, I'll take the question as, uh, so the way I've normally been asked that is, Sean, what keeps you up at night? Um, two years ago, it was having money. All right. You know, we're, 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 we're taking a lot longer, three years ago, we're taking longer than we want to get to market. I'm so afraid that we're not going to get to market, that we're going to run out of money, and that I don't know what's going to happen. So that was it in the beginning. Once we got to market and people started adopting it, our biggest challenge was getting the data. We thought that customers had access to a whole bunch of data. When we originally built the platform, we weren't, we weren't worried about connecting into Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, all these things. We thought that they already had data sitting on their systems that they wanted to send us. Turns out that wasn't the case. <laughs> so we started integrating and aggregating all this information, and it became very obvious that our system can't scale like this. We're, we're going to die if, if we get another 500 users tagging the system. It ain't going to work. So that's what kept me up. So we solved that problem. So we, we, the money problem is kind of solved. Uh, we're to the point now where I let Jeff worry about that. I don't even think about it anymore. Uh, as far as the scalability factor, uh, we've gotten that taken care of now. Um, but yeah, our system going down and not being able to handle the load was the biggest thing that kept me up for the better part of a year. Today, what keeps me up is failing because of our success. Uh, we're hitting hyper growth. Um, we, have more, we have more people coming in than we know what to do with. And so it is absolutely imperative that we scale our business. The software is fine. The software will scale fine. It's the business side of things. We've got to have support. We've got to have trainers. We've got to have you know, accounting. We've got to have all, HR. We've got to have all these things now. 
in scaling the business quickly to meet this sudden demand, that doesn't keep me up as much, but it's definitely something that the management meetings now are completely animated with in the legal side of things. We, we have a team of lawyers now that, uh, yeah, <laughs> we deal a lot with lawyers. Uh, I have a question about, you mentioned this long list of features mm -hmm. that continues to grow, and it sounds like you guys have done a great job managing which ones to build next, but can you talk to how you're managing your, uh, your feature list mm -hmm. and your product roadmaps? Absolutely. So, uh, so the question was, how do we manage our feature list and product roadmap? And uh, so we use Jira and Confluence uh, for ticket tracking and uh, basically Scrum-style development. Uh, it's it's really a matter of looking at okay, how many people have asked for it, all right, and how easy is it for us to do? How long will it take us to get? Is it low-hanging fruit that five of our customers would absolutely love? All right, let's bump that up to the top. Or, uh, and, and so that's really kind of how it works, uh, basically. You kind of have to take each one and say, well, all right, you ask for every link to be opened in a new tab. We're not going to do that. Uh, Right-click on it and open it in a new tab if you want it to. It's a, our, our system's web-based. So it's like not all of our customers want that. And if we built that one feature in, we're only doing it for that one person. And at the end of the day, does that get us new licenses? Are we selling more subscriptions because of that feature? No. So it, it's really a combination of those things. Other questions? What's the main code that you guys focus on? Um, so the, the software stack that we use is primarily C Sharp. There's some C++. Uh, the front end is written in ASP.NET. Uh, we use WCF uh, services, again, uh, Windows Communication Foundation web service uh, written in C Sharp. Um, for, for our REST API, it's actually, I think, an MVC project. And uh, back end, we use Microsoft SQL Server. Uh, we use Apache Solar for, for searching and scalability. And um, uh, we use Microsoft Message Queuing Service for message queuing between our systems. We're actually looking at RabbitMQ. We're actually moving towards RabbitMQ. Uh, for that, because MSMQ can't keep up, and uh, uh, MongoDB is currently being implemented now for our document repository. So we use SQL Server as our document store today, which works fine, it's okay, but uh, there are some other things that we need to do, and we need to scale it. Uh, SQL Server doesn't scale as well vertically um, or horizontally, so uh, that's basically the technology stack. All word of mouth. It's all word of mouth. We we landed some. So a lot. Don't don't discount the fact that Jeff is an amazing salesman and has contacts that I can only dream of having. But we landed a few large clients in the in the government, and it's just all word of mouth at that point. You know, they you have so we have an office in Australia. You have an agency calls up their contact over in the U.S. because they share information a lot. They're, we have a really good relationship with them. And they'll say, hey, I've got this, uh, we're looking to do this social media thing. You know, ISIS is all over the post. Like, what do you guys do? Oh, we got this thing called Babel Street. All right, well, I guess we'll take a look at it. 
and it's all word of mouth uh, at the Super Bowl. So uh, actually at the World Series last year, uh, the, I don't know, one of the security directors at the Major League Baseball was walking through the security booth and saw that one of our customers was using the Battle Street stuff up on the software. And he was like, hey, what is that? They're like, yeah, we use this to monitor the game day activity with all this stuff. He's like, huh. Like, I'll reach out to them. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for Major League Baseball. And so we've actually uh, we've actually had several meetings with Major League Baseball in hopes that we can, you know, move things forward there for them. But it's all word of mouth, every bit of it. Thank you.